This morning, we are going to continue through John, and I, I had, a, had a look. Now, this is an old sermon by Pastor Jim Simbler from the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York, and he did this sermon with this big worship conference, and he's, he's an author of a few books. He wrote Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He wrote Fresh Faith. He wrote Breakthrough Prayer, as well as a whole bunch of other types of, of books. Uh, he's got a real heart to see God move, to see the Spirit of God move in people's lives. And I, and I think that's the desire for all of us as God's children. And in this particular sermon, I actually, I, I, I sent the link for that sermon on YouTube. It's in the description of the YouTube, so the live stream, the description will be there. It says, uh, my house shall be called the house of prayer, is the name of the sermon. And, and he basically, what he's looking at is how the focus of the modern day church seems to have shifted. It has shifted from a place of, of power and God's presence to a place of program and activity. Not intentionally. I mean, it's all done with the, with the, the, the right intent, with the right ideas, but it falls into this, this idea where the, the church, the modern day church, now he preached the sermon in the 80s, okay, so when I was a teenager, but it's just, just as applicable today. And how the church has been reduced that gives the appearance of righteousness. It gives the appearance of righteousness. It, it's become a place of, of shallow, shallow holiness. It's become a place of cheap grace. This misunderstanding of what the gospel is and, and of what the, the church is. It's been substituted with these things, and it challenges, particularly this message, it challenges the role of leaders, it challenges the role of pastors and of elders, it, it challenges the roles of, honestly, just if you have an example, if you have an influence as a Christian on the lives of other people within the church, it, it challenges all of us in regards of how we either intentionally or unintentionally have abused the position and the privilege that God has given to us in Christ, and we have diminished it to be something that is superficial, something, honestly, very weak, something that the world really doesn't see any desire for because they see no reality of Jesus in the church. That's why when Peter writes to the diaspora, when Peter writes to the church that is scattered throughout the five provinces, he says this, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And the text that we're going to look at today is a text that portrays the Lord Jesus in a manner that is completely contrary to a lot of the images that not only the world has, but what the church has in general. Why? Because it is an image that flies in the face of the, the peace-loving, peace-keeping, reconciliatory nature. Did I just make that word up? I think I just did. Yeah. Reconciling. Yeah, we'll go with that one reconciling nature of the Lord Jesus. And why? Because it has something to do with his father's house. It's got everything to do with his father's house and his father's reputation because it's a judgment that 
he expresses in the abuse of what God had designed for a place of communion, a, a place of worship, a place of praise, a place of connection with the Almighty God, and it was reduced to something far less. And that's what, I guess you could say, irked or stirred the very righteous heart of Jesus Christ into doing something about it. So I'm going to open a word of prayer, and we're going to look at John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 17, but I really encourage you to read the whole passage in, in your own time. Uh, let's, let's pray, and then I'll open with the, with the reading. Father, we thank you that you are the consuming fire, that you consume all our unrighteousness, that you consume all our selfishness. We, you consume all these things that are contrary to your beauty and to your nature, uh, our sinfulness, our ego, and our pride, that you consume all such things in the greatness of your Son, and that in Him we are made new, in Him we are regenerated, in Him we are born again. So I pray, Father, as, as, as we are new creations in Christ Jesus, as we are your workmanship created in Christ, may you give us eyes, ears, and hearts that are open to your spirit this morning. Please meet with us. Please connect with us. Please challenge us with where we're at and consume, Father, all the things within us that keep us separate from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in John chapter 2, starting from verse 13, we read this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. We'll stop there. This is the first. If you remember last week, we looked at the miracle Jesus performs at Cana of Galilee, the first of his miracles by turning water into wine. Then, straight after this, we read about how he comes into the temple. This is the first cleansing of the temple. Some, some people, when you look online, they refer to it as the temple tantrum. I prefer the cleansing of the temple. And now we are told different facts about what happened. So this is the first time. The other time is mentioned three times in the other Gospels, and we'll touch on those a little bit later on. But we're told it was nearly Passover, who could tell me what Passover celebrates? What does Passover remember? Passover is a... Okay, she thought, she thought I think it's Egypt. <laughs> Passover is about remembering the mighty hand of God that delivered his people from oppression delivered his people from slavery, delivered his people from the rule of a foreign land. If anything, it is a celebration or you could say a ceremony of hope. It's a reminder of the greatness of God, how through 10 plagues, God reached down and plucked them out. 
how God delivers them through the death of an innocent on their behalf. How God destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea and they walked through. There's this huge thing where, honestly, we're looking at, wow, we're remembering all of these wonderful things that God has done. Now, think about the context within which Jesus is living now. Where are the people of Israel? They're in Jerusalem. They are in Israel. But they are in oppression. They are suffering under the rule of Rome. They are suffering oppression from a foreign land. If anything, this reminder of Passover for them could be or should be a reminder for them to think, wow, if God could deliver them from Egypt under Pharaoh's rule, imagine what he could do to Rome. Imagine the hope that could be instilled with him, the sense of hope in the oppression that they were currently suffering. Maybe questions arose for them personally. Maybe they wondered where the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is in their context right now. Maybe they're just going through these motions or they've come up with questions. Is God real? Is the God of my, fa- my forefathers the same God I serve now? Is the God that parted the Red Sea, is he the same God that could destroy the Roman Empire? Is this, maybe there's just a whole heap of questions. And that's the reason why people gather from all around to come to Jerusalem, to go to the temple and celebrate Passover. This is where Jesus is going, as you look up there. But when Jesus walks in, what does he see? He sees people selling cattle. He sees people making money. He sees people exchanging currency. In other words, when he walks in there, what he sees is people abusing abusing their positions by utilizing what God had made for their own purposes, for their own benefit. It was the abuse of God's house because as the other three Gospels talk about, the other three Gospels are Mark 21.3, Mark 11.17, and Luke 19.46. In the latter part of Jesus' ministry, he walks in and he sees the exact same thing taking place. If anything, it's probably even worse because he's already held them accountable here in John chapter 2. He's already challenged them in John chapter 2. Now he comes back and it's still going on. But he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. That's Mark eleven, seventeen. This house of prayer, that communion with the Almighty was to take place. This house of prayer where worship of the Most High was freely given. This house of prayer where sacrifices of praise, thanksgiving, and atonement were offered. This house of prayer that is referred to in Isaiah 56 verse 7. And so the state of God's house that Jesus rebukes them here three years later hasn't changed from his first assessment in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry. This is three years before that. He says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or a marketplace, as it says in the NIV. It was damning for those in charge. This beautiful house of communion, this beautiful house of worship, this beautiful house of sacrifice has now been reduced by the religious leaders and by these merchants into a place of business, into a place of money-making and power plays. 
Now, I want you to make knowing something to you here, though, okay? The money changers and the merchants were supposed to be there. See, our, our, our church services, we gather here, it's all prim and, and, and proper and, and, and quiet. The temple, and, and especially in the court of Gentiles, it was, it was bustling. Why? Because there were animals, and, but you had people coming from all around the place, from different areas within the modern world at that time, and so you had all these people that would have different currencies. So there was a purpose for the money changes to be there, so when you have someone, it's like, it's like saying someone coming over with some New Zealand money, with some, some New Zealand dollars, some Wontala, some South African rand. They come over here to Australia, and we all give them the same currency. We change it over, and you all have that standard currency. They had what's called the Tyrian shekel. And so they would come, they would have the Tyrian shekel, and then they would have this. They'd use that to pay for the temple tax or to purchase various sacrifices. You get it? Problem was, like most business people, what can I get out of this? And so the religious leaders would have got something on the side. There was an abuse of their position of privilege to take that which was supposed to be for the benefit of the people and make money off it. Some people might view that as being entrepreneurial. But when it comes to the things of God, it's like when we give tithes and offerings and we have guests that come along. This one church I would go to, when they would have guests that come to church, they'd say, if, if you have the bag, come, you don't have to give anything. And they would always follow it with this line. He'd say, you don't need to pay to come to church. And he'd say, so if you're a guest here, please don't offer anything. You just, just come along, let it go past. You don't have to pay to go to church. All right? And I thought, that's a wonderful line, because it's true. It's, it's, it's where, as Ellie eloquently shared, it's a free will offering. We give to the Lord, him who has given us everything. So the money changes were supposed to be there, but they abused it. The merchants or the guys selling animals, well, they were supposed to be there because it's kind of hard to have a sacrifice that you travel. If you're traveling from a whole great distance and you've got a specific sacrifice that you need to present, it's kind of hard to make sure that you keep that sacrifice safe the whole trip. And so it was convenient for them to get to there and say, okay, we have animals we can purchase here that we can sacrifice freely. So they were supposed to be there too. The problem was they weren't giving the best. You were supposed to give the best that you had to offer, a, a, a lamb that was unblemished, there was no broken bones, wasn't bruised, anything like this. What they were doing, they just had, oh, okay, look, we've got this one. It's not as good as the others, but yeah, okay, we'll push that. It's what we do with our offerings, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's not as good. Oh, Lord, you know, yeah, I'll give you this much this time. I'll give you my leftovers. I'll give you what's there. And this is what's basically what happens here. If you read in Malachi, I love it in Malachi because that's the condemnation that he gives Israel. He gives Israel. And he says, he says basically, and, and this is the Joe Helg version, he says, you give your sacrifice to your leaders. Will they be happy with it? And yet you give it to God? And, says, and that's what he was condemning them over. And that's what is happening here. He's giving, they're selling the leftovers. And even then, they're selling them at these exorbitant prices that were just, once again, it lined their pockets. This is what is going on here. And this is what, I guess you'd say, stirred the very heart of Jesus. And it is in response to these abuses, the abuse of power, the abuse of position, the abuse of privilege, that the Lord does something that, boom, just flies in the face of everybody there. If you look at verses 15 and 16, this is huge. 
he makes a whip. He arms himself. He makes a whip of cords and he drives them out. Now I've been, okay, I love my mum and my dad dearly, but I remember being chased by my mum and dad a few different times and they're carrying stuff ready to hit me with it. And I ran for my life. You know, now, I would, be, I would like to defend my mum and dad to say that every, every disciplining I got, I honestly deserved. I honestly deserved. There was never an unreasonable beating. Beating is the wrong word. Beating is the wrong word. There was never an unreasonable disciplining that I got okay, from, from my parents. I think one of my funniest ones, okay, the slight sidetrack, I remember one time I had my hand out and my dad was going to smack my hand with the belt and then I moved my hand. And my dad fell over, and I just ran. I just, I just, I just ran. And and then my dad, he was about forty-seven at the time. He was still playing first, like first grade rugby league at that time in New Zealand. And I looked over, and my dad was chasing me, and he was catching me. I was, oh. Yeah, okay. You know, besides the win, I'll give you the end of that story later. Okay, okay. But but you, you know what I mean. So he makes a whip and he starts he starts whipping. He starts belting. He's overturning things. He's basically letting them know, look. This means something to me. This place means something to me. This place is valuable to me. This place is precious to me. And you are doing this to that which is precious. You've taken this beautiful house where I can connect with my father and you've turned it into a market. That's why he's upset. I guarantee you, if anybody came into any one of your homes and started having a party there and said, this is my party house now, you would kick them out. You would kick them out. Jimmy may join in, but anyway, but you would kick them out. You'd kick them out, you'd overturn, you'd say, get out of my house. This is not what it's for. This is not what it's for. This is why the Lord Jesus states that this is a blasphemy taking place in his father's house. It points to the seriousness. It points to the value that the Lord Jesus places on this divine connection that he has with his father. A connection that he always shared, whether at his baptism and his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In his moments alone, like in Matthew chapter 12, 15, when he's transfigured, in his, in his praying in John 17 and interceding on others' behalf as he kicks people out and says, I want to be alone here in Mark 5. Which is why in verse 17, we read how his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. But it wasn't about the house. It wasn't, okay, let me explain. It wasn't about the house. It was, it was about what the house represented. It was about what the house represented and how that representation had been twisted. That's serious. A seriousness and a value so deep, so rich, that in the end, it cost Jesus his life so that we could experience the intimacy of connection that he did with his heavenly father. So serious and so deep that he's made it available to us through his sacrifice, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. You see, if we were to look at ourselves as a church, if we were to look at ourselves as GCC, how would we align ourselves with the, I guess you could say the blueprint that the early church sets out for us in Acts chapter two? 
How, how would we either align with or fall short of that blueprint? And then what can we do about it? So I've just taken some hearts here. So we read in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Thank you. Once again, thank you to Simon and Vivian for my sweat towel. I appreciate that. Okay. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs being performed. Sorry, signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If Jesus were to enter GCC today, what things would he overturn? What things would he drive out? What things would he scatter around the place because they are things that don't align with his heart, that don't align with his goal? What would he overturn that would enable us to experience the fullness of the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, that it might be genuine? What would he drive out with the whipper cords that are made up of his spirit and his word, his rebuke and his love? What things would he cast down that we might value his presence over our activity and busyness? That we might seek his power over our effort and desire his pleasure and his goals and his heart for our heart? What are those things that he would do for us in this church? I was with, if you remember last week when we spoke about the Lord Jesus going to the wedding and, and, and interacting with people and socializing with them, showing people the reality of who Jesus is by Jesus actually being there. On Friday night after youth, so they usually go to McDonald's afterwards. And it was really fascinating. I was talking with Rog, Pastor Rog, and we're having a chat. And, and he goes, oh, what did you speak on? We, we spoke a little bit about what I spoke on Sunday. He goes, you come into McDonald's. And there was something that Roger said to me that I really sort of connected with. Because like they come here early on at 5 o'clock and they have a Bible study. Then they have like an evangelistic type of youth meeting where they, have the share, they share the gospel. They're doing that whole series on the line of decision about choosing to be for Jesus or you're against Jesus. And, and, they're, they're, and then afterwards, they go to McDonald's and they have a feed. And Rog said to me this, he goes, you know, McDonald's is where I do my discipleship. And I says, yeah? And he goes, yeah. Because it's in those real moments of being with people as a real person that you get to connect with them, really. And I'm like, yeah, bro. So Sorry. Yeah, yeah, he's married. For those at home who don't know, he's married. So, so I, so, so I went, I went along. So I just went along, and it was really fascinating because there's this young fella, 17 year old guy named Ray, who's been a Christian for about six months. He shared his testimony on Friday night, and while I was there, Ray and Rog were just sitting in a booth, and Rog was just talking with them as they shared a meal, and he was just talking with them. And I was thinking, that's where the discipleship's taking place, just in those real moments of real connection and real interaction. You know how you can impact these kids that are upstairs? 
You know how you can impact the teenagers? As we sit down, we wonder about what's going on with our kids. Oh, no, our kids, so many young people are turning away from Jesus. So many people don't believe in Jesus. So many people are having a struggle following Jesus. Well, I tell you what, maybe because so many of those kids are left to their own devices and don't know or don't get to experience what Jesus is like in the lives of our aunties and uncles or of the pastors and elders or of the Bible study leaders and, and, and other people around here or the married couples and all that sort of stuff. Why? Because they don't get to experience it outside of a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday morning where the only interaction that those kids get from us is, hey, how you going? Don't do that. Maybe it can go on to a little further from that, eh? Maybe that discipleship could be them coming over to your place. It's something as simple as, come over, bring the family over for a meal and your kids can weed my garden. I've tried that, doesn't work. But anyway, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? But it could be something as simple as that. Something as simple as that. What things are there? What things are there? Now, here's what's really cool. Pastor Simbalan, if you listen to this sermon that I posted on the thing, he has this, this part in it, which I think is absolutely amazing. He says, there are more people turning to crack. Remember, this was done in the 80s. There are more people turning to crack than to Christ. And preaching is not going to do it alone. And teaching is not going to do it alone. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what brings God's power and grace into a situation. It's not because we're lacking knowledge. And he makes this comment. It's not because we're lacking knowledge. Today we have more access to any preacher, any teacher, any type of Christian influence. We have more access to any books about parenting, books about being a man, books about being a woman, books about being an eloquent speaker. We've got more books available to us today than ever at any time in history, and yet there are more people that don't know Jesus in our own homes. There are more kids that don't know any idea or are biblically illiterate. Biblically illiterate. So it's not because of a lack of knowledge. It's not because of a lack of how-to, but where the rubber hits the road, we need the power of God and the grace of God. You know how we address the power of God and grace of God within GCC? We do that in prayer. We do that by seeking Him, not once a month, every single day. Not once a week. I'm, I, I'm so thankful for my brother Brad. Once a week we meet. And B-Rad and I, we go to the cry room or the crash, and we, we pray. We talk, we pray, we pray for each other, and we pray for the church weekly. And, and like, it's not, a, it's not a formal thing. You know, like, I'm not sitting there, I'm not expecting you. I'm not expecting you, oh, if you're a guy, if you're a man, come to the man's prep. No, 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 no. But if you want to see change in your homes, you want to see change in your own lives, you want to see change within your communities, you want to see change in your church, you want to see change in your Bible study, change in your workplace, the only way that change is brought about is by seeking God, it's by seeking Him and allowing Him to clean things up. Um, it's at the throne of grace, through prayer, we might receive grace and help in time of need. That's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. There's this guy by the name of Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and he states this. He says, we need to start doing church differently. Okay, and, and before you sit there and say, oh, what do you mean differently? He makes this really interesting comment. He says, there's this growing antagonism towards Christianity today and the values that you hold as a church. And he goes, our involvement with one another needs to change. Our support of one another 
needs to change. In a world that's becoming more antagonistic towards someone who will stand up and say a man is a man and a woman is a woman, then you can get into heaps of trouble for that nowadays. You get there and sit there and you say, make a statement about the LG, I always forget what they are, the, the letters, but you know what I mean? LGBTQ, yeah, thank, thank you, Stephen. Okay, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? And you say something against that and you can get in trouble, you can lose your job for that. And, and this, Dr. Erwin Lutzer said this, he goes, he goes, he shared about how when at the end of the Second World War and you had the Nazis move out and this church leader recognized that the communists were moving in. And so what he did with his church, he actually said, okay, we need to start making groups, small groups within our church because there's going to be a point where we won't be able to meet together as a big church. And he says, and we need to support each other. So if you stand up for something and you, you lose your job, what would happen was that that cell group, that group, would look after that person. We'll support you until you get back on your feet, until you find another job. We'll support you. We'll bring you food. We'll give you money. We'll support you. With the way things are going in the world today, then we may need to start doing things differently. We need to be, we, we need to be more involved with each other. If you don't belong to a small group, then I think you should be getting to it. You have to, you have to, for your own spiritual welfare, for your own spiritual encouragement, for your own spiritual blessing. No man is an island. And so for your blessing, for your support, because Sunday isn't enough. Sunday is not enough. Nothing's going to change after a 40-minute, soon-to-be 40-minute sermon. Nothing's going to change. Why? Because this isn't life. This isn't life. This is the day where we get to worship and celebrate God together. And we hear about things, but it's after this, when you go back to work on Monday, when you're looking after your kids and you're losing your temper, when you've got to be there to support as a grandparent. Yeah, yeah, that's where, that's where we need to. So if you're not in a cell group, then I would encourage you, I would encourage you, I would say to you, you need to get connected with somebody. You need to be in a group. You need to be in a group. And so you can not only bless, but be blessed as we walk with Jesus together. That's as a church. What about personally? What about personally? I am told in the scriptures that God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. Okay, In Acts 17, 24 and 25, the Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he, as if he needed anything. Sorry. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. But then this God who doesn't dwell in buildings made with human hands chooses to dwell and live within you. He makes his abode in you. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temples you are. Making the place of connection that Jesus had now open to us. Which means then that I need to look at how I am keeping this temple sanctified for the glory of God. And that if Jesus was to enter, metaphorically speaking, this temple in my heart as he did in Jerusalem, would he enter a place of communion and prayer, of praise and worship, a place of sacrifice and thanksgiving, or a place that's just full of Joe and what? He wants. Because if he does and he finds something that he's happy with, great. But if he doesn't, and this is what I'm excited about, this is what encourages my soul, that if it's not, he'll clean it out. 
He'll clean it out. He'll overturn things. He'll drive it out. He'll make his whip of cords for my life and what my heart is like, and he'll drive those things out that affects my connection with him. And you'll find just unintentionally that you'll start desiring more of what Jesus wants over what you want. And what's crazy is you'll like it. You'll like it. You'll be like, you'll be happy about it. Case in point, this is a wonderful thing that Emily, Emily done. So as you know, Emily, she's been walking with a walker and stuff. At home, she walks with no, with no walker. She's just practicing walking un, uh, unassisted. Now, because she has to concentrate a lot, and she'll walk, and she sort of balances as she goes like this, okay? And yet she'll, she'll balance as she goes along, so if she tries to fall, she might fall, she'll, she'll get it, and she does a great job. Then one day out of the blue, she goes, Dad! I went, yeah, my hands are by my side. I said, what? I, said, I was walking back from the bathroom, and my hands are swinging by my side. And I'm just like, that's awesome. I'm like, that is so cool. That is so exciting. And she goes, shit, here's what's crazy. She didn't know. She didn't notice. It was just out of the blue. She'd been doing that for ages. Then out of the blue, she's just like, I'm walking like this now. Not, not, as, not as cool as that. Like she's, I mean, I was, I mean, I, I was, I was strutting there. I was like, yeah. no, she's not, she's not strutting or anything. But, but she's walking with her arms down by her side. And it just like that. That's what God does. That's what the Lord Jesus does in your spirit. That you'll find, wow, it just, okay, when, when I, I did Lent, and one of the things I did for Lent was I stopped fizzy drink, and I stopped chocolate and sweets and all that sort of stuff. Now, that was ages ago. It finished, I think, at Easter. I still haven't had a chocolate bar. Just because I didn't want one. Yeah, thank, thank you, Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy he's like, uh, but, but, <laughs> but, but here, now here's what's crazy. I don't desire to have a chocolate bar either. I just, I don't want one. It's just like, yeah. And, and like, you might sit there and say, Joe, that's silly. But no, it, it, for me, that's, but it's just, it's just happened. It's just, that's what the Lord Jesus does as he cleans things out. He slowly changes it where you want to be doing these things that he wants over what you want. Now, there'll be, there'll be opposition. Then there'll be temptation from yourself and from those around you. It might even come from other, other Christians, but here's what's really cool. Jesus, who cleans out his church, promised to build his church, and he promised to sustain his church, and he does so because it's what's best for us, it's what's best for the church, it's what's best for the world. That's what's exciting. Now, we may not fully understand or fully appreciate his best in our lives, but his best has always is always and will always be enough for me. Will always be enough for me. So that your faith will not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Having this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, be able to live and the victory and the abundance that he has promised us. To receive from the Lord a cleansing of mind, of soul, and of spirit, as our temples experience the fullness of Christ's involvement in each of our lives, no matter who we are and no matter what we're doing. That's what excites my heart, and that's the position we're placed in in Jesus Christ. So I pray that you might be encouraged with this and to know that as, as difficult as it may be, the Lord Jesus wants to cleanse things. He wants to overturn things. He wants to, to drive things out so that you might experience the fullness of him 
and you'll like it too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is active and alive and working in each one of our hearts today. I pray that you will help each of us to be open to what you are doing. And that the things that need to be changed, the things that need to be overturned, the things that need to be scattered, the things that need to be driven out, will be done so by your Spirit, through your Word, as we dwell in your presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you involve yourselves with us, that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and you have done so in a manner that we would enjoy the greatness of who you are in every moment of every day. So I thank you for this word today. I thank you for this people, for this church. And I pray, Father, that this, as this is your house that you promised to build, that we would be open to what you were doing and respond obediently. So we ask for you to dismiss us now in Jesus' name. Amen.